Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Have you ever wondered about these words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What does Jesus mean? Is he at the last minute trying to get out of his passion and death on the cross? Is it as if he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane and suddenly realizes just how much suffering this is going to involve, how painful this is going to be, how difficult this is going to be, and he makes a last-ditch effort to beg the Father to find some other way to save the world? Is that really what's going on here? We're going to see there's a lot happening in this powerful scene of the agony in the garden. I want to take a look at what Jesus meant by those words, and I want to also consider what they mean for our lives, because they're going to serve as a great window into how we face the challenges and the crosses that inevitably come up in our own lives. So, Are you ready to jump in? I want to give you a little bit of context to this scene. I want you to recall how this is really the climax right now, here at The Passion. Have you you seen Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ? I think many of you have. The whole movie opens up with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's this battle going on with him and the devil. In fact, it, it even portrays this snake coming to attack Jesus, and at the last minute, Jesus steps on the snake and kills it. Now, you don't read about a snake and the devil explicitly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the four gospel accounts of Christ's passion. But I think uh, Mel Gibson, while he's definitely using artistic license here, it's spot on because I do think the gospels are trying to show us that this is the beginning of the final showdown between Jesus and the ultimate enemy, which is Satan. You may recall that in the beginning of Jesus's uh, uh, gospel uh, narratives, uh, he's in the desert for 40 days, and he goes on this time of prayer and fasting. And in Luke chapter 4, it tells us something interesting, that when the devil tempts Jesus those three times, he eventually leaves Jesus in, in the desert. But the text tells us that he left Jesus until the opportune time. That's a very important word there. The devil left Jesus until the opportune time. In other words, Jesus may have won this initial battle against the devil. And there's going to be some other little skirmishes uh, in the public ministry as Jesus faces some of Satan's minions and, and the demons that he's expelling throughout his public ministry. But the fact that Luke chapter 4 tells us that the devil's waiting until the opportune time tells us that The war isn't over yet. There's going to be another big battle coming up in the future. And that battle is beginning right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. This scene uh, is where Jesus begins his passion. And the, the text tells us that Jesus is sorrowful even unto death. That's what Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, 38. Now, I just want you to know that expression, sorrowful even to death, that is biblical language describing someone experiencing excruciating pain. It's almost unbearable suffering. It's as if they're being pushed to the brink of the amount of pain that they can take. Uh, And the pain that Jesus is experiencing isn't simply the pain of the, the suffering, the physical suffering he's going to endure the next day. It's not just the weight of the sins of the world that he's facing here. There's something specific that I think you and I can relate to. It's the pain also of a friend who betrays you. 
You see, in the Old Testament book of Sirach, chapter 37, verse 2, this same expression about grief unto death, sorrow unto death is used. And we see it to use to describe the pain of someone who has a friend betraying him. Listen to what Sirach 37, 2 says. Is it not a grief to the death when a companion and a friend turns to enmity? So Sirach uses the same expression about sorrow, grief unto death, to describe a friend who's becoming an enemy. And from our own experience, isn't, isn't that some of the, most, the worst kind of suffering? It's one thing to face physical pain, but you have someone that you thought was a close friend, someone that loved you, turn against you, betray you, do something to hurt you. That can sometimes be more painful than any kind of physical suffering we may endure. So think about what Jesus is going through there in the garden. He knows Judas is on his way. Judas, his close friend, his disciple, is about to betray him. And the other disciples he knows are all going to flee here and abandon him in the garden. So this is a cause of of additional suffering for Jesus there. Uh, Another interesting thing is that Luke's gospel, chapter 22, tells us that when Jesus is there in the garden. Luke highlights that Jesus is facing an agony. He uses the word agony, and then he describes how Jesus is sweating like drops of blood. Now, those two little biblical details tell us so much. Agony, drops of blood. Why? Because in the ancient Greco-Roman world, this would have brought to mind the runner's agony the agony of a runner. Now, I want to tell you about this. So when, you know, there are many uh, contests and races that would go on in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and when a runner was preparing for a great race and he's at the starting line, he's getting ready to go, he's preparing so much and there's so much intensity uh, that sometimes he would break out into such sweat that blood would even come out. And so this was known as the runner's agony. And Luke, being the good physician that he is and writing to a Gentile audience that would know of this tradition, he highlights this point about how Jesus was setting like sweating like drops of blood in the garden to portray Jesus as like uh, experiencing a runner's agony. So picture this. It's Jesus there at the starting line. He's at the beginning of his contest, his big contest against Satan. And he's starting to sweat like drops of blood coming out. He is facing his agony like the runner at the beginning of a great race. And he's going to go off and it's going to be an intense race, but he's going to emerge the victor as we know as he rises on the third day. But let's turn to our our main text here that I want to consider. And that's the mysterious words of Jesus. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, I, I think it's, it's important to highlight that these words reflect the humanness of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the Holy Son of God. He is fully divine, but he takes on our human nature and he's truly human. So Jesus is fully human, fully divine, fully God, fully man. And if he's truly human and he knows he's going to face this betrayal, he's going to be condemned to death, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be nailed to a cross, that's not something that any ordinary human being would look forward to. In other words, if Jesus is truly human, then the idea of this intense suffering and death is not going to be pleasant to him. So these, these, these words here in the Garden of Gethsemane are simply reflecting his humanity. He is truly human. And this kind of torturous suffering and death would be repugnant to any human being. It's repugnant to human nature. And Jesus has taken on our human nature indeed, indeed. But yet, he is also fully divine. And his human will is 
perfectly united to his divine will. That's why Jesus immediately says, but not my will, but your will be done. He turns to the Father and embraces the Father's will, the Father's plan for him. So Jesus knows this is going to involve a lot of intense suffering, and yet he completely embraces it in order to fulfill the Father's plan and bring salvation to the world. And I love this here because I think this tells us something about how we should face our own crosses in our own lives. And I want to use a little analogy here from the great St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas says about this scene, he says, it's kind of like when, you know, a human being has to take bad tasting medicine. They know the medicine's good for them. They don't take the bad tasting medicine for the taste. They take it because they know it will help them. It's for their good. And and Aquinas uses that analogy to say that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus knows that this is bad tasting medicine. He's acknowledging the bad taste, and yet he's going to take it with, with no hesitation, fully embracing it, because he knows this is what's going to be the spiritual medicine that will bring healing to the human family and restore humanity to God. Now, uh, this is an analogy very dear to my heart in recent weeks because I've had to give my kids bad tasting medicine. Uh, So we, uh, my little baby Eleanor had the flu and we had to give her uh, that Tamiflu, that medicine, and it wasn't good tasting medicine. And we tried all these tricks in the book to get her to taste it. We put it in her mouth, we put it in ice cream and she could taste it. And she just kept spitting up the medicine because it was bad tasting. Uh, But when we, become older and we're adults, we may not like bad tasting medicine, but when we're more mature, we know, well, we're going to take this anyway because we know it's good for us. Um, in the spiritual life, here's the question I have for you. Do you ever have moments where you know you're supposed to do something, but it's difficult? Maybe you're supposed to have a difficult conversation with a friend or a colleague or a boss or a family member or someone at your parish, and, and, you, and you have a pit in your stomach, you're not sure how they're going to take it, whatever the issue may be, and, uh, but you know you need to do it. Like, like that, that pit in your stomach, that's just recognizing this is hard, it's going to be painful. But what do you do? Do you do the right thing right away? Or do you hesitate? Do you take a long time? Do you run away from the difficult thing because it's going to be so challenging for you? Do you run away from that suffering? Or maybe there's something you know you need to change in your life. You know that you've got this bad habit or there's something you like and you know you're supposed to give it up. But that sacrifice is hard. It's it's too painful. And so you hesitate, you put it, you push it off, you, you procrastinate. Uh, what do you do when you face crosses in your life? Do you embrace the cross right away or do you run away from the cross or procrastinate picking it up? What do you do? Jesus in the garden is a model for all of us. Jesus is truly human. He doesn't look at the cross and go, oh, cool, I get to be crucified tomorrow. No, no, no. He looks at it and he sees the pain. He knows how painful this is going to be. He recognizes it and yet he doesn't allow that repugnance toward what is painful to keep him from doing the right thing. His human will is perfectly united to the divine will and he embraces the cross immediately. So here's my question for you. How can you be more like Jesus? I know I need this message. I need to think about this this sorrowful mystery of Jesus' agony a lot. Because I know in my own life, there's times I'll procrastinate doing the right thing because I know it's going to be hard. Or sometimes I just run away and ignore, you know, and and rationalize what I'm doing because I run away from the cross. 
That's not what Jesus did. Jesus acknowledges it's hard and he embraces the cross. Uh, And it brings about great good. It brought about the salvation of the world. And when we embrace the crosses in our life promptly, joyfully, obediently, it'll bear fruit in our lives. And I want to share with you just one more thing. Can I do one more thing with you all here uh, uh, from the agony in the garden and the beauty of how scripture shows the, the profound fruit this bears when Jesus embraces the cup and drinks the cup of his father. Uh, it's fascinating. If you think about uh, how Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane, this would bring to mind how Adam went to a garden and how Jesus is going to go to a garden and be tested like Adam was. But Jesus is going to prove to be faithful precisely where Adam was unfaithful. And he emerges as a new Adam redeeming humanity. This is one of the, I think, most beautiful points in the agony in the garden here. Uh, Think about this. Adam went to a garden. He was tested by the devil. He failed the test. Uh, he, He ends up giving in to temptation and he does his own will. He's not faithful to God's will. And as a result... Adam is going to experience a whole series of curses. Uh, first of all, what, one of the things Adam was supposed to do is to take care of the soil, to till the soil and to bear, you know, to, to bring forth a, a great harvest from the land. But now because he sinned and brought sin into the world, he's going to experience the curse of the ground. The ground is not going to bear fruit like it used to do. It, it's, going to, it's going to be harder to till the soil and he's going to have to sweat and work by the sweat of his brow. So sweat is part of of the curse of Adam. And now instead of bearing lots of fruit, many times the land will produce thorns and thistles. And so thorns is one of the things listed in the curses of Adam in Genesis 3. So you've got sweat, we've got the thorns, and we also got the ground being cursed. And then Adam himself is told that he's going to be expelled from the garden. He's going to have to leave paradise. So he's expelled from paradise, expelled from the garden of Eden, And then he's not going to live forever anymore. He is one day going to die and return to the cursed ground. He's going to return to the ground. And we we hear that message every Lent, right? And uh, at Ash Wednesday, we hear how you are dust and to dust you shall return. But Jesus comes and notice what Jesus does. Jesus is going to enter right into the same kind of thing Adam did. But he's going to be faithful where Adam was unfaithful. Jesus, at the climax of his mission, goes to a garden, not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. And just like Adam was tested in a garden, so is Jesus tested there. But Jesus passes the test. He doesn't do his own will. He does the will of the Father. And, and, and he goes to the cross, and through his passion and death, he's going to take on the curses of Adam. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus takes on the curse of the sweat as he starts sweating profusely like drops of blood. Secondly, he takes on the curse of the thorns the next day, right? Because what happens? He is crowned with a crown of thorns by those Roman soldiers. So Jesus takes on the curse of the sweat. He takes on the curse of the thorns. And then Jesus is going to experience death, death on the cross, and his body is going to be laid in the ground, in the tomb. Uh, So he's going to go down into the ground after experiencing the curse of death. He goes into that cursed ground, just like Adam was cursed with death and the ground was cursed. Finally, 
What happens, though? As a result of Jesus' faithfulness and taking on the curses of Adam, Jesus is going to open the gates to paradise. In fact, one of the last things Jesus says on the cross, he turns to the good thief and he says, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Adam was expelled from paradise. Jesus is leading the way of bringing souls like the good thief and millions of others to heaven. All who are faithful to him will be restored to paradise. So my friends, I hope this reflection on the agony in the garden was helpful for you. If it was, please share this with other people that they may enter into Lent and prepare their hearts for Holy Week coming up here soon. Please subscribe to this podcast. And if you have any questions, anything about the passion or uh, anything, I want to invite you to send your questions to me because I'm going to do a special Q&A episode later this spring. You can send your questions to me on my website at edwardsree.com or you can reach out to me on Facebook and Twitter. God bless.